Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Leaders are often people who everyone else looks up to when it's time to make decisions. However, being a leader doesn't guarantee that we always have the right answers or even the answer itself. My guest today is on a mission to help leaders avoid the traps of costly judgment errors or cognitive biases in order to be a more strategic decision maker. Dr. Gleeb Tispersky is a behavioral economist, cognitive neuroscientist, and the author of Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. Gleeb, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Thank you so much for having me on, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So in addition to this program, we're also live casting right on LinkedIn and Facebook as we bring it live on C-Suite Radio as well. I want to start by asking you, what can be characterized as a business disaster? I mean, you know, is, is it the election? Is it, <laughs> is it what we're going through COVID? What is a recent business disaster in the news that will likely haunt the company for years to come? Well, there are lots of disasters that are going on and anything that is a disaster. So let's talk about what it is in principle. In principle, it's something that negatively impacts your bottom line in any substantial way. Of course, it can be something external like COVID. It can be something external like this potential for uh, an election fiasco. And we can talk about that as well. <laughs> and of course, it can be something internal. For example, with Uber, there was a major issue with sexual harassment. Sexual harassment with the rise of the Me Too movement, where Uber didn't notice that, hey, previous practices that previously got by, which they shouldn't have, but they got by, well, now society doesn't look at them so kindly anymore. And when a number of women inside Uber talked about their sexual harassment publicly, well, that's what that's what actually led to the CEO and founder of Uber resigning. So that was an example of something that happened internally. Another thing that happens is a combination of internal and external disasters. Something that's very much in the news is the antitrust lawsuit against Google. So the antitrust lawsuit against Google that was just launched today by the federal government and a number of states. That's a big deal. And that came about partially as a result of Google's internal actions, where Google chose to have a number of practices that some say might be anti-competitive, or at least it was perceived that way. So the crucial thing there is perceptions. Google didn't understand how its actions would be perceived by the federal government, especially in this environment. And that was a big, big, crucial blunder by Google because it very much could have avoided this disaster. Well, some companies have done this in the past. I mean, let's look at Microsoft, a very I would consider them predatory. I would consider Google to be predatory. I would I've described Adobe Acrobat in the same way. And not in a in a, you know, like do they mean to do it, but their their strategies, the ways they do it make it so. So the title of your book is Never Go With Your Gut. Why shouldn't we go with our gut? Doesn't that go against the grain of everything we've learned as leaders? 
It very much goes against the grain, the title of my book, and something that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, a lot of people uncomfortable to even think about not going with their gut. You know, because gurus tell us all the time, you know, go with your gut, follow your heart, trust your intuition. That's what they tell us. That's the message that we hear. Unfortunately, this message is so flawed. That's what we're discovering on evidence-based business research. You might have heard about evidence-based medicine, which really started around 2000 and so around so where a lot of previous medical practices that people thought were right on uh, were shown to be not right. So whether it stands for heart issues and even stuff like, let's say, basic practices, doctors washing their hands before going to patients. Research showed that about one third of the time when doctors were going to patients, they weren't washing their hands. It was horrible. And that's one of the reasons, major reasons that a lot of deaths happen in hospitals. Well, now we're looking at very recently evidence-based business research, which shows that going with our gut is can be fatally flawed for businesses. It feels very comfortable intuitively because that's what, how it feels, that's how your gut feels, but it often leads to disastrous decisions. That's why about half of all startups fail within the first five years and about three quarters fail within the first three year, 15 years in a normal environment. But in the COVID environment, of course, many more fail because people aren't deciding with their gut, not with their heads. But our guts are evolved not for the modern world, they're evolved for the ancient savanna. And that is what our guts are evolved for. The modern world with the internet and so on has really been around since 1990. You think we've had time to evolve for it? Of course not. Your feelings, your intuitions are unfortunately going to lead you astray. And the crucial thing to remember is that we have a set of dangerous judgment errors called cognitive biases that result from our evolutionary background and how our brains are wired. And so these lead us to make very bad decisions. That's what we need to be afraid of, these dangerous judgment errors that executives, leaders of all sorts, need to worry about and avoid if they don't want to screw up their companies, even though it feels very uncomfortable to do so. But, you know, uh, Webb, sometimes we don't have the data. I don't have that information available. Are you telling me to, to ignore my experience of the things I've had in the past in order to just make it make a decision another way? There's critical things to realize about our experience. Our experience is only in form, only good in areas where we had extensive practice and got pretty immediate feedback about the success of our practice. So for example, if you're looking at a profit and loss statement, right? You've looked at, if you're a leader, you've looked at hundreds of them. You can quickly at a glance judge what's going on within a business unit by a profit and loss statement. Or if you're looking for, let's say you're looking for your email, you can very quickly at a glance decide what's spam or not, right? That's very quick. But if you're hiring a key executive, if you're deciding on a merger and acquisition, you're deciding on a major product launch, that happens very rarely within a business. And that is something that you should not trust yourself on. So major decisions, major things, which you don't have much experience doing because you feel like you have experience, you feel good about yourself because you have experience in certain small areas, frequent decisions. But these large decisions, lots of research shows that the typical hires that are made at the top levels of the organization, if they're not, if they're made when people go with their gut, as opposed to following a clear, structured, evidence-based decision-making process, 
then they lead to disastrous hires. And you could see what happened with you know, GE having a pretty disastrous hire where they hired a CEO who left within less than a year. Plenty of occasions like that where the board went with their guts as opposed to following a clear decision-making process. Happens very often and is very dangerous. Yeah, and the same thing would go with your investments. I know I've made lots <laughs> of investments based on my gut, and I ended up trying to corner the market on pheasants when I found out there wasn't one. But that's a different story, a different book. So, hey, COVID has served as an accelerator for businesses everywhere. I mean, you know, days are, have become weeks, weeks have become months, months have become years. So what are some decision-making strategies we can implement to overcome harmful uh, gut reactions? So first thing to understand is that you're going to overcome your gut. We Overcoming these dangerous judgment errors means not going with your gut and learning as for important decisions. Once you don't want to screw up, that you need to go against your intuitions because they evolved to help early humans survive but are not wired for the modern world. So for example, you have already learned in certain areas not to go with your gut. You know, let's say eating donuts, when somebody leaves some delicious break donuts in the break room, box of dozen donuts, you, you know, you go there, you take half a donut, that's all, but then you want to take the other half. And then you want to take maybe another one. And before you know it, half the box is gone. You know, not that I ever did it myself. Now, Glebe, you're starting to get personal here. All right. Oh, well, I'm, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> well, I hope you choose going for healthy fruits next time. You know, healthy, right. fresh fruits. That's a developed habit. You know, nobody is born liking salad. <laughs> Let me be honest. Let's be honest. Babies, when you see them sucking on things, candies, that's what they like. They like sugar. We are triggered by sugar. That's what we're evolved to be triggered by because our ancestors, the ones who were triggered by sugar when they got across some honey, apples, bananas, they needed to eat as much of it as possible in order to survive, thrive, and reproduce. In the modern world, that's a very bad instinct, but we still go with it. So what you need to do is learn about these dangerous judgment errors. That's the first step. So before talking about techniques to address them, you need to learn about them, be aware of them. The normalcy bias is one of the biggest dangerous judgment errors for businesses. And that happened a lot with the COVID pandemic. So I was on your show about six months ago talking about how the normalcy bias has to do with us assuming that the future will be much like the past and that things will go along smoothly. That is a very bad assumption in the modern world. In the past, in the Savannah environment, it was a good assumption. You know, the major change would be change of the seasons. In the modern world, that's a very bad assumption. But so many business leaders and lots of folks on the show who pushed back against me way back in April when I was talking about how the pandemic would last for years, not months like they thought it would be. And this is an example of the normalcy bias. They couldn't overcome this. Related to that is the confirmation bias, where we look for information that confirms our beliefs. And when you get information that doesn't, such as my statements about not going with your gut, you tend to reject them because it doesn't feel comfortable. That is a crucial thing. You are letting your emotions drive you in business, and that leads you to make bad mistakes. The final dangerous judgment error, so the top three, I would say is the planning fallacy, where we make plans and then we go according to these plans. We think, hey, the plan is good, and then we'll follow the plan, and we don't pivot nearly quickly enough for various problems that can come up with COVID-19. Had so many clients who had a lot of trouble pivoting with COVID-19, adapting to this new abnormal. That's a big problem. Not planning for problems, not planning for risks, Uber, Google, and so on. So this is what you need to do. And then I can talk about a specific technique that you can use to address a lot of decision-making disasters. 
or unless you want to ask me about something about these, Jeff. Well, I, you know, I think I, I want to talk about, you're making me rethink the process, right? In terms of, and I, I thought your stuff uh, six months ago was like eye-opening and if people haven't had a chance to go back and see that. You want to see that because you were talking about this lasting for years. And certainly now we're in this second wave of, uh, of COVID and it's actually worse. This isn't going yeah. away. And, and, yep. and so it's going to fundamentally change the way we operate. So, but you're, you're making me rethink the way I want to do things or how I've always done them. So, so you've said that I say traditional strategic planning assessments like SWAT, which is, you know, something that we've always done are false comforts. So yeah. why do you say that? And why should we, and what should we replace it with? What am I, that, that's the tool I've always known. So what should mm -hmm. I have now? The problem with SWAT, it's a very dangerous tool because people think that, hey, I went through SWAT, I'm safe. I looked at my strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Unfortunately, if you didn't account for cognitive biases, you are just having yourself some false comfort there. How many mm -hmm. people used SWAT and didn't account for something like a pandemic? These low probability, high impact threats. You don't account for all the weaknesses. You don't account for all the threats naturally. How many people just looked for information that confirmed their beliefs and didn't disconfirm them? One of the fundamental things that about SWAT that people look for that is that they look for information that goes along with what they think. They think they have strengths in certain areas, and therefore, they write that they have these strengths. They don't try to disconfirm their hypotheses. What you should always be doing whenever you go for a process is try to prove yourself wrong. That's not what SWAT is. SWAT is proving yourself right. Your strengths, your weaknesses, your opportunities, your threats. What you should be doing is the, trying to disconfirm what's going on. Then the planning fallacy. You need to be aware that your plans will be screwed up sometimes. They will not go according to plan. Right. And to build in a lot of extra resources of time, money, and so on for things that you don't anticipate, which might be big like a pandemic or everyday disasters for a company like your key officer getting hit by the proverbial bus, right? What company has plans for that? Well, unfortunately, you should be planning for these sorts of things, doing a lot of cross-trading, doing a lot of backup. And people don't do that. So that is a fundamental mistake that I would say that people make. And so here's a tool that can replace SWAT quite easily and is quick to deploy, very quick, very easy, it takes only a couple of minutes if you do it for moderate, for moderate daily decisions. You should be using this two to 10 times a day for decisions you don't want to screw up. And you can use this for a more thorough analysis, replacing SWAT for strategic planning. So first, what information didn't I yet fully consider? What evidence didn't I take into account? So let's talk about writing an email. You probably write important emails, you know, several emails a day, maybe five, maybe 10, that you don't want to screw up. So what might you not take into account when writing an email? Let's say you're trying to persuade a client, as I have to sometimes, to do something uncomfortable. So I had to try to persuade a client for their strategic planning to address an issue in advance with a leader in the company that really shouldn't be in the company before letting her go into the strategic planning meeting and screw everything up. And the client doesn't want to do it because it feels uncomfortable to have that conversation. So I have to take into account all of these factors and try to persuade her in my email in advance, knowing all the problems that will get my client to not do what I want them to do. Now, if I don't take this information into account, just write an email saying, hey, you should do this. Well, the client, my client is much less likely to do what I would like them to do and what she really should be doing. Then next, 
what dangerous judgment errors didn't you fully address? So what haven't you considered? Let's say the planning fallacy. So the planning fallacy, I haven't taken into account all the ways that maybe this business leader or will, for my client, who's the CEO of the company, is serving the company inside internally, what the internal politics are, so planning fallacy or other things. So you need to think about these things, take them into account as you're doing, making your decision, writing an email, deciding on a key hire, thinking about the product launch that you want to make, whatever. Then what would a trusted and objective advisor suggest I do? So think about what Jeff would suggest you do. Or if you're part of the C-suite network, think about what the peer group that you're part of would suggest you do. So get yourself some trusted and objective advisors, consultants, coaches, peers, whatever, who can give you advice on what's going on. How have I addressed all the ways that this could fail? This is the fourth question you want to ask. Fourth question you want to ask to avoid disasters. For, so for example, for that email, you know, something that I might not have thought about is the clients might be in a situation where, well, you know, she, her, there's an outbreak in the local area because of the second wave of COVID that Jeff mentioned, and her kids are now home from school. Previously, they were in school. Now they're home from school. She's distracted. She's pissed. So I need to draft the email and then read it as someone who's distracted and pissed, and then make sure that none of my parts of my email can be interpreted in a hostile, guilting manner, or or make sure that it's not that it's something that I can draw attention to the most important parts of the email. And finally, what new information would cause me to revisit this decision? What would cause you to change your mind? You want to decide this in advance rather than in the moment, because after we make a decision, it's much harder to change our minds. So for the email, I have a specific point of revision. In three days, I will give my client a call if I haven't heard back from her. So that's a specific revision point that I can say, you know, I don't need to worry about things. In three days, I know I'll have that revision point and give my client a call. Otherwise, I'd be worried about, well, why is my client not responding? Why is she not replying? This method, these five questions can be used for any decision. Any decision that you don't want to screw up, especially for a team decision, because you can get together, have all the members of a team answer this in advance, and then have a team decision-making meeting where you structure the agenda around these five questions. My clients find it so much more effective, so much more efficient to have these team meetings where everyone thought about this in advance. They go for the agenda, the decision is much better, and they waste much less time. C-Suite Radio. Well, it's hard to shake us of, of some of these biases. You know, the past few months have told us many things, including that great leaders hold steady during a crisis. In fact, I know that a lot of the folks in the C-suite have been really um, happy to have been in part of it because we all stuck together. We all worked through it. We we took it on. We faced it right away. But how 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 do you take cognitive biases that can remain in place? Because we know they're there. I know they're there. I, I see this in everything that we do, especially as I've become more aware of it. So how do you define cognitive biases and how far reaching can their influencing be in the decision-making process? Can it derail us? It very much can derail us. So either of those, on a, one of those biases, normalcy bias, another one, the confirmation bias, the planning fallacy, and so many others can very much derail our decision-making. And companies fail fundamentally because they don't take into account cognitive biases and how they cause leaders to go astray. So you are the chief marketing officer for Kodak, right? You, you know that Kodak invented the digital camera in 1984. And then, unfortunately, they didn't take into account 
soon enough that the market would shift from their digital film to the digital film business away from photographic film business. They were looking at this in the early 1990s and they said, hey, it's okay, we'll still stick with our photographic film business because there's much more money to be made, much higher profit margins, about 62% in photographic film, physical film versus the 30% that's in digital. But other companies passed it by and as people started using more and more digital and less and less film, well, Kodak didn't do very well and eventually had to go into bankruptcy because they couldn't catch the wave. They were behind the wave. And that's a classic example of a huge, major, very successful company making very wrong decisions. They fell into planning fallacy. They didn't plan for what was going to happen, even though they had every opportunity to do so. Boeing, right? Boeing had a huge disaster with the 737 MAX. And we know that inside the company, they had a lot of information about the 737 MAX being a very big problem. I mean, um, quote, to quote an internal email for, from a top tester, this plane was designed by monkeys supervised by clowns, right? <laughs> Not the thing that you want to hear about your airplane. So the Boeing yeah. leadership had this information, but they chose not to act on it. They were too comfortable. This is another example of the normalcy bias. They, Because every previous model of Boeing was safer than the last, they thought that, hey, this new model, it can't be safe. It can't be less safe. It's going to be at least as safe. We're going to put it out. It's going to be more efficient and at least as safe. We're going to ignore these gr grumbles from inside the company and look what happened. Boeing lost about $25 billion in market value before the pandemic. And then, yeah. of course, 346 people died. Well, you become as hubris of your success and that success then puts these biases in and then you reinforce it and reinforce it. You know, at Kodak, I saw it all the time, even when I was there, you know, you said 1994, uh, you know, it was actually 1975 is when we really invented the digital camera oh, when it first invented. Uh, Stephen Wise was a great, a good guy that did it and unbelievable. But nonetheless, in 1994, we pawned it off on Apple and then. Mm -hmm. And I came to the company about 12 years after that. But all of those biases that you talk about were there 12 years later and all part of what I call stories. So what cognitive biases can be the most dangerous for business? You know, which ones are the most uh, which ones are we most vulnerable to? So besides the ones that I named, the confirmation bias, the normalcy bias, and the planning fallacy, I'd like to highlight sunken costs. Sunken costs is when mm. we make a project, when we have a project, we tend to invest a lot of money into that project, even when that project is not working out. So even when the project doesn't work, there's a lot of examples in business where businesses are not cutting their costs. They're not cutting their losses. They're just saying, okay, you know, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep putting money into this project. And why is that? Why does that happen? Well, we don't want to be wrong. We don't want to yeah. feel like we're wrong. And that feeling of being wrong, it's driving a lot of ego, a lot of ego. Ego is one of the most dangerous things you can be have in business is not have a sense of humility, is have a sense of ego that I'm right, I'm confident, I'm good, as opposed to having humility and saying, hey, maybe this project is not working out. That's one of the reasons why one of the five questions for avoiding disasters has the question of 
well, what new information would cause me to revisit this decision? That's meant to address sunken costs, where we tend to really be attached to our decisions. And that's a big problem that a lot of businesses face. That's one of the biggest reasons why they fail. They don't pivot in a quickly enough manner. You need to be oriented toward pivoting. You need to be oriented toward building up that humility. And that humility will also help you overcome another very dangerous cognitive bias called the overconfidence bias. So again, the overconfidence bias. We all tend to be too confident about our decisions. It's just a tendency. They feel right, they feel good. And we don't differentiate between those little decisions that we make every day that we are right on. The profit and loss statements, looking at our emails, having conversations with colleagues, being able to sense where they're going and being able to convince them effectively. Those are things we have a lot of practice in, but we don't have a lot of practice in major, more serious decisions. And that is the danger. We mistake our ability in more everyday regular decisions that all confidence that we have in terms of being confident for major decisions, decisions that you really need external guidance on that you don't want to screw up. And that's something that we need to be really afraid of. So the overconfidence bias and the sunken costs are the other two cognitive biases I'd highlight here. We get two minutes before I want to turn it back over and uh, to the team and go to questions, because I know that a lot of questions are popping up in the chat, which is awesome. And of course, coming as we're broadcasting or live casting to LinkedIn and Facebook. My key question is, I want to end it with this one, Glebe. What techniques can we put in place for ourselves and our teams to overcome these judgment errors so I don't make the mistake right up front? Excellent question. So the five questions to avoid decision disasters that we went through is one such technique. That's a technique where you want to make sure to get the right decision. So after you get the right decision, after you go through that and you're, okay, you know, you feel like you're at the right decision, what you want to do is in make sure that you implement the decision successfully. So for a successful implementation process, you want to go through what's called failure proofing. So failure proofing is where you first look at the decision, and you imagine that it completely failed. Whatever decision you're on, you're imagined completely failed, and then you have people in the room, ideally anonymously, write out all the reasons for why it failed. You don't want to just say, why might it fail? Psychologically, so you're looking at the behavioral economics and cognitive neuroscience, when people say that, they have an internal blocker. Their ego blocks them from admitting that their project, their pet project, whatever they're on, is going to fail. When you say it failed, absolutely failed, find all the reasons for failure. That really helps. So you find all the reasons for failure, then you look at which ones of these are the most likely and the most impactful, and you want to make this anonymous because you want to bring up personality issues. You know, I had this where I was facilitating one of these failure-proofing exercises for a major product launch for a software company where the product was going to fail, according to one of the people anonymously, because the marketing the marketing head VP hated the operations VP. So that, that was a reason actually that was brought up and we had oh, to yeah. discuss it. And that's a typical thing that goes on in businesses. If, if you don't haven't seen C-suites that have those kind of hatred between each other, uh, you ain't seen nothing yet. So that's, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that happens all the time. And then you want to imagine that the thing which, that you're doing completely and absolutely succeeded. And then think about all the reasons for success and make sure that you try to integrate them into the project plan. That way you minimize failure by addressing all the reasons for failure and you maximize success by, make, by integrating all the reasons for success into the implementation plan. 
Uh, well, great stuff. Unbelievable. And yeah, you can imagine that politics always does play a part in the C-suite or some C-suites, at least those companies that aren't operating like with hero values. We see that. I know I've had a, um, a major television um, show that we had on a major network, all paid for, all done, all filmed. Everything was wrapped up in the can, ready to go. And a new executive came in and got rid of everything the old executive did just because he or she could. I won't even say what network or whatever, but that happens. Listen, I always tell everybody, and I'm so so pleased with this program, uh, Gleave, and what you've done. I got, you know, I tell people when you come to the C-suite network, you get a little education, you get a little motivation, some inspiration, even a chance at monetization. In this case, I got a lot of education. Now I'm motivated to go out and do something with this information. And of course, I'll get my monetization as a result of it. I want to turn it back over to Tricia and to Greg, because we've got a lot of member questions and want to have a good discussion. And this is what it's all about. We set it up with the interview, which we do right here on All Business with Jeffrey Hazlitt on C-Suite Radio. And then we turn it into a digital discussion, which is a hallmark that we have right here in the C-Suite, opening up transparency and having some great, good discussion and learning. C-Suite Radio. So I'll turn it over to Tricia and Greg. That was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for that level setting. It is really fantastic to go from the last, you know, six months ago when we were first starting into this to where we are now and how we level set around our decision-making. We have some phenomenal questions. So first, um, Kimberly Carlson, I'm going to go to her first. She put the first question there. It's fantastic. How do we work? And I think this is especially challenging for women executives. How do we work in a space of humility with others when they are operating in the space of ego? Mm. Yes, that is definitely a very important question. And you want to realize that sometimes others will operate in the space of ego and that doesn't impact you. What you want to do is be calm about the situation and operate in that space of humility. Now, where it helps is showing that your evaluations are going to be more correct than their evaluations because you're using humility. And what I found a very useful technique is to have bets, essentially place bets. Say, what is the executive who you're working with, what do they bet will happen as a result of a certain decision? What do they estimate? You don't need to make bets. Bets is useful, but what do they think will happen? What's the financial impact? Because it's all about the bottom line, right? So what's the financial impact of a certain decision? Then you make that estimate, and then you come up with your own, and you show over time that your estimates because you want to get them, make sure to have them down on paper, make sure to revisit them, that, hey, we'll revisit this in six months. We'll see whose estimate was more accurate. So over time, it will be clear that you operating in the space of humility are definitely more likely to be correct than somebody operating in the space of ego. But to do that, you need to get that down on paper and have a commitment to revisit the decision in six months. I have to tell you that in all the companies that I've worked as a consultant, this, uh, when they brought me in, none of them have been doing that. They have never had a process where they made a commitment to evaluating what is going to be the result of a decision and then coming back and saying, hey, was our evaluation correct or not? So this is a very helpful practice to, to have. So I have my own question. So we're in a time where people talk about expert-based decision-making. People have experts on the left, people have experts on the right, and they make their decision based on the experts that they believe in. So my question to you is, um, if you're relying on experts and you have 100 experts in a room, 99 of those experts say yes, and the one expert who says no is Albert Einstein, 
Which side do you go with? The 99 who say yes or Albert Einstein or someone like him who mm -hmm. says no? I would say in that case, you would want to first understand the motivations of Albert Einstein. Now, if Albert Einstein happens to be in Nazi Germany, and if he has a gun, point, gun at his head to uh, say no, you know, in an alternative timeline, he might not have escaped Nazi Germany in a timely enough manner, and he might have been working for Hitler to build the atom bomb instead of for the US. So this is an alternative timeline, fortunately, didn't happen. But you want to understand the motivations of Albert Einstein, and you want to understand the motivations of those 199 experts. If those 99 experts are paid by the tobacco industry to say that tobacco is completely fine, safe, doesn't cause cancer, then you want to not believe those experts. So you want to look at the motivations. You want to look at the finances. That's a critical component of the dynamic. In that case, once you get the finances out of the way, you want to trust the 99 people. When we look at the research on who is most often likely to be correct, 99 people who are not even experts, but even moderately expert versus the one true expert, the 99 people tend to overwhelmingly be correct. And this is the research from Wisdom of the Crowd. So a book you can get on that so is called Wisdom of the Crowd. And I talk about that, of course, in more depth and never go with your gut how pioneering leaders make the best decisions to avoid business disasters. But if you really want to dive in onto the one versus 99 and how you should trust 99 more, Wisdom of the Crowd would be a good book. Thank you for that suggestion. Your book link is in the chat, Dr. Sapersky. Um, Dan Silverberg is one of our faculty leaders, a thought council leader in C-Suite Network. He recommended also Strauss and Glazer, The Grounded Theory, um, you know, where people are looking for facts that back up their perspective. And I think that's something that's uh, fascinating as we look at how we make that decision um, and, and what we're basing it on. Um, Dan included a question that says, you know, how will AI moving forward mitigate human bias? Uh, will mm. we over time get results uh, that, are, that are delivering uh, more so than those disasters and scenarios like the big ones that you were sharing with us? I very much hope so. So AI has a lot of benefits. We know that formulas tend to outperform human beings on decisions, all sorts of decisions, because formulas are essentially the agglomeration of experts. Those 99 experts that Greg was talking about, that's what a formula is. It looks at expert decision-making over time, sees what are the most likely decisions that are going to be right, and then directs it into the right direction. And so we know, and the government and a lot of companies have been using AI to make decisions more and more. That is helpful. We want there are some things to watch out for in using AI. One is what kind of decisions is it being trained on? If it's being trained on the decisions of the 99 experts paid by tobacco companies to say that tobacco doesn't cause cancer, that's a bad thing. So you want to make sure that there's no bias going into the training of the AI. So the training is what gives the algorithm the ability to make the right decisions. And that's been definitely an issue that has where algorithms have shown a number of biases that are based on the kind of training data that are given. That's one dynamic that you want to watch out for AI. The other thing is decisions on outliers. AI doesn't make good decisions on new information, on things that don't happen regularly. So on pandemics, that is not a good decision-making for AI because it's something new. It's a disruption. It doesn't have previous training to get ready for it. So those are the areas where human beings can outperform AI. New areas, ones that are different from previous areas that the AI decided on. Daniel Huberi wants to know, 
quote, when you are starting a new project from scratch, how do you define the difference between gut and pioneering? When you have pioneering, what you do is you look ahead like a pioneer looking through the glasses, right? And finding some data. When you have gut, you just feel that a certain thing is right and then you go ahead with it. So for example, I talked about the reasons why startups fail. One of the top two reasons why startups fail is lack of fit of product to market. So when you look at the two, there are two reasons. One of the top two reasons, one of these top reasons, lack of fit of product to market. That should never happen. You should never even begin a startup where the product is not fitting the market. You should do testing, evaluation of the product, whether it fits the market before you start something up and invest serious money into it. That is something called a minimum viable product. You want to see if your market will accept the product. And that's an example where you go with your gut instead of pioneering. Pioneering in this case would be looking ahead and testing out various hypotheses. So firing a bullet before firing a cannonball, right? That's what you want to make sure that you do. So that is the strategy that I would say is pioneering versus going with your gut. So Cheryl Lynn is another one of our faculty leaders in C-Suite Network. And she says, she just has a great question about how we address stress levels. And when you hit that wall, you know, the, the suggestion of ask five questions um, that's coming in from an email and you get that stress of, I don't have time to deal with that, or I don't have time to handle the, the five questions. How do you address those types of scenarios where it feels like it's just adding on and people aren't buying into um, dedicating that time to do it? That's a very important question. And what you want to, what helps in that situation is what people talk about meditation. So meditation, uh, I do meditation every day. And uh, the very important aspect of meditation is that, hey, if you, you do meditation daily, and if you feel you don't have time to do that meditation, you do twice as much meditation as you should, as you feel you should every day, right? Because that meditation helps you keep calm, leveled, and stress-free. So what happens with the five questions? It feels like you don't have time. Those two, three minutes that it takes to go for those five questions for a daily decision like an email. Of course, it takes longer for a major decision. But it feels like you don't have time. But do you have time to deal with the consequences of screwing up that email? <laughs> no, of course not. You know how much time I would have had to spend on the phone with my client with dealing with the mess of the strategic retreat being bad? You know how much time that is? That is an incredible amount of time. Stress, hassle, losing trust, losing credibility with my client, rather than making sure that she does the difficult thing of dealing with that opposing team member before the meeting itself. That, so you, what you do is you put out sparks before they spark into a flame. Likely what you're experiencing when you have that stress level of tons and tons of emails is that you feel you're putting out fires. You're putting out fires all the time. That is what the experience of most executives is, unfortunately. And when it feels like you're putting out fires all the time, that means you're doing it wrong. You're doing executive wrong. <laughs> that is not the way, I'm sorry, <laughs> that's rough, but that's true. You're not doing the function of being an executive right. What an executive truly needs to do is look ahead, forecast the kind of fires that might happen and put them out in advance, bank those flames, not have what's going on in California right now. Right. It's not the sexiness of the up and down. It's the steady consistency, right? Exactly. Greg? Cindy Chosik has a question. 
And she wants to know about the distinctions between instinct and intuition. Mm -hmm. so instinct is something that we feel. We feel we like somebody and therefore we want to hire them. Where does that feeling of liking come from? Well, in the ancient savannah, it was very important for us to be tribal. That tribal feeling, that feeling that somebody is like us, similar to us, was is very important in whether we like somebody or not. So for example, I was giving a presentation here in Columbus, Ohio, to the local HR group for Central Ohio, about 100 HR leaders at a diversity inclusion retreat, keynote on this topic, closing keynote. And I asked them, you know, one thing if you know about Columbus, Ohio, we have the Buckeyes football team. That's the big football team around here. And our biggest rivals are the University of Michigan Wolverines, one of the biggest rivalries in college football. I asked those over 100 people, how many of them would hire a University of Michigan fan? How many of them would hire? Three people, three of those HR leaders in diversity inclusion retreat would hire University of Michigan fan. Obviously, that doesn't matter for their job performance, but it matters for that sense of tribalism. You don't feel like that person is a part of your tribe. That's a gut reaction. So you don't want to go with that. Intuition is something different. So expert intuition specifically is something built up on top of having extensive experience in a certain distinct domain and then have being able to translate that experience into future decision making. I gave the example of reading profit and loss reports or the ability to, for example, go for your email or anything that you do on a daily level. So for people who write blogs frequently, you're likely going to be better and better at writing blogs. And over time, you're going to be better at predicting how people will respond. Or if you have a lot of meetings with people, with executives, if you're part of an executive team, you likely learn how people in that room will respond to certain suggestions because you have a lot of feedback. You spent a lot of time with these people, maybe more than with your family, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you feel about your family. But that is something where you get in expert intuition in this specific domain. So you can trust yourself in specific areas where you have extensive practice, you know, extensive, extensive, hundreds of hours of practice, if not thousands, and quick feedback on whether you're doing it right or wrong. Fantastic. I, I have one more question uh, that we can uh, fit in here. Um, how, Dan Silberberg again, great question. How does loss aversion play into the decisions that become disasters? Loss aversion is one of the cognitive biases. I didn't feature it, but it's definitely one of the top 10. So I go went for the top five. Loss aversion is our tendency to not want to lose things. So we are very much that's a cognitive bias. We are very much likelier to avoid losing things than to gain things, about 50% more likely from what the research suggests. So as a result of loss aversion, the loss aversion causes us to, A, not make necessary changes when we should. So looking at, let's say, COVID-19, so many people stuck with their original existing plans. This is what I was talking about when I was with Jeff on the previous show, which you should check out back in April. So many people stuck to their previous existing strategic plans versus realizing that COVID is not a day-to-day -day issue. It's not going to disappear quickly. You need to pivot very quickly for this new reality. And the ones who did pivot quickly, they are the ones who are flourishing 
position right now. The ones who didn't pivot quickly, were, they're the ones who are struggling right now. And, it's, and that's because we don't want to lose that existing plan. We feel we're invested. We feel we're committed. That's one example. Another example is when we don't take necessary risks. When we go with our previous decision-making, when we are, tend to be conservative, and when we don't take necessary risks. A lot of companies, once they get into a groove, into a certain trend, they tend to stick with that trend. And they tend to not launch new products, especially ones that might threaten their previous product monopoly. And they don't notice how their existing product line gets less and less appealing to the market. So they're not looking at the market nearly well enough and thinking about new products that they should offer to this market, which might be risky, and that's what they should experiment with, have that minimal viable product, but they should take those risks. So make sure that they take those, those risks, are innovative and creative, as opposed to falling for loss aversion and not wanting to ruin their good thing. Thank you so much, Dr. Sapersky. This was uh, absolutely phenomenal. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.